The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. I mentioned the Queen's Bar. There are far worse places you could be today than sitting out in front of the Queen's Bar at the top of the town here in Dalky, uh, just underneath Dalky Castle. A beautiful, beautiful bar, beautiful part uh, of the town. We're very privileged uh, to be here today. Very privileged to be joined uh, by a well, lo- local boy done good. Is that how I'm going to describe you, Mark Little? Yeah, I've been here for 20 years now and of course every day is the same. We have Aperol spritzes at 5 o'clock and fish tacos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, the sun always shines here all well, year round. Uh, Tom Dunn brought me for a tour of the town and it strikes me there's so many places uh, 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 where you can buy food and and drink and sit outside, that they they must rely a little on the the lady who lunch trade or the the uh, the, the technology CEO who lunches trade. Well, you, you think that when you come here because it's the kind of place you know you come for Matt Damon the super value right, and you come for the beautiful <laughs> seaside, and there's not a day in Dalky you don't think about how privileged you are, and then as you get to know people in the community, you realise. This is a community of entrepreneurs. It's a community of people who are, you know, for years fighting the good fight to keep a community spirit alive, whether it's the local creche or it's the people caring for the elderly or it's the local businesses, including the Queen's. And so you get sort of grounded. I've been here 20 years. And I really feel like my daughter just graduated from her Leaving Cert class the other day. She's doing the Leaving Cert. The level of support from the schools for the kids... So yeah, there's there's there are two sides of the town which I think people don't see until you get bedded down and realise you're not going anywhere. And a big part of that community spirit, I guess, it gets fostered every year by the Doggy Book Fest as well. Yeah, and it's it's one of the success stories about you know this happened after the financial crisis. I remember Shan Smith and Dave McWilliams had this idea that we needed to revive community, so they launched the book festival, and it was fighting the good fight for the first couple of years to make it international. This year, I mean, it's basically sold out. You know, you've got people like Tom Hanks are coming along and Brian Cox and, you know, local artists. Uh, you may have heard of them, Bono and The Edge. They're popping in and as well. But writers from all over the world having conversations that literally will jam every single public space. So it's a great tribute, I think, to Shannon David, but also to just that slow burn of community in Ireland that just builds up to the point now that it's one of the best international book festivals. That's some achievement over the space of a decade. Yeah, and I mean... Dalky as well, it does have this kind of small town feel despite being surrounded by you know the city and its suburbs uh, to a degree. And, and you look at the other towns, smaller towns in Ireland that, that have made a, a kind of a success of themselves and I mean there's a number of factors. There's often a big local employer is a key part of it. Uh, there's maybe proximity to a big urban conurbation so people don't have to move away. But there is also that community spirit that often gets fostered by festivals. Yeah, and it's also a little bit of a frontier spirit, the Dalky from history. I mean, you know, you see the Martello Towers on the coastline because this was the first place that, you know, they wanted to defend against the French invading yes. Ireland. You see up on the hill, they recovered a couple of years ago, the era sign that they painted to tell the German pilots not to drop the bombs on Dublin. Is that because so the Germans edge? thought there was all West Brits here, they might bomb them. <laughs> Touché. Well done. I couldn't help myself. Listen, you're taking part in two different uh, discussions, two panels. Uh, both interesting, actually, in the own right. Well, one of them is whether kind of TikTok has killed the novel. Yeah, so like I'm talking really about how technology affects our everyday lives, the culture mm. we have, and, and that's sort of really what I am obsessed with at the moment, particularly with AI. So I'm doing a panel on the Sunday about how war correspondency has changed with the advent of technology, and on the Saturday, a panel talking about how platforms like TikTok which people would expect would destroy our attention spans, right? Make us only fit for 15 seconds, read the beginning of the book and throw it away. 
But in fact, it's created, particularly among younger people, this viral sensation where people can actually find books much quicker that identify with their culture. So to that extent, everyone thought technology would wipe out our attention spans, and yet it's impacted where the reading habits of young people now are very much democratic. People sharing among each other mm. in quick messages, something that resonated with them in a book. And it doesn't have to be a new book. could be books of old. And I see this a lot in culture generally. My kids with music, Saturday night we'll sit and have dinner. I'll give them on the phone and I'll say, give me a piece of music that you're listening to right now. And my son said recently, have you ever heard of Steely Dan? <laughs> and I realise what's happening yeah, is... Tom, you mentioned Tom earlier. Tom Dunn has the same experience right. as his daughters. Yeah. And they're not... For them, there's no limit to the pop songs that are in the charts right now. They're on a journey mediated by people just like them. And so there's something really creative about that. Yeah, I love doing that. On the school run in the morning, my daughter is the DJ. So she takes the phone, she picks the songs, and herself and her brother, they alternate. So we've had a lot of Moncrief uh, 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 <laughs> in the last uh, few days. My daughter's a huge fan of Moncrief. Uh, my, I don't know, have you had the pleasure of listening to Richie Cavanagh sing I Love the Smell of Silage? But anyway, I, if, I if, if you haven't yet, you will. It is ahead of you, Mark, I, I hope. The other conversation you mentioned, so the, the, the war correspondence, um, uh, dying to tell a story, um, I mean, it strikes me that there's a technological aspect to all of this as well, because uh, for as long as we can remember fake news, it wasn't called fake news, but fake news was part and parcel of, of war correspondence. Yeah, and I mean, I was sent out my first battlefield, I remember, in Iraq in 2003, and I took about 9,000 worth of excess baggage we paid to get my chemical weapons kit, my bulletproof vests, my satellite dish, everything out to Iraq to get me there to talk and, and report back from there. And when I got there, I had to get a translator to translate into the local dialect of the local language to tell me what I should say to people back home. And I had to get to the satellite dish to report back. To be honest, the old days were not that great in some ways. Mm. Today, I'm watching in Ukraine the counteroffensive happening. And we're seeing live footage coming in from drones. We're seeing experts sit identifying exactly what's going on on the ground using what we call open source intelligence technology that we were developing at my startup Storyful. And so technology has now become a real liberator for people who are trying to verify what's going on in real time. And as you say, fake news has been around forever, since the Crimean War all the way through the Second World War, even to the Cold War. So it's kind of an arms race, if not to use an analogy mm. of labor there. But technology is helping the people trying to verify. And they're in a battle, obviously, with the people that are using technology to speed up the acceleration of this conspiracy theorists. And the difficulty, though, that people have often, though, is, is, is just the sheer information that they're inundated by so it's very easy say to, to stick with the Iraq analogy comic Alali will remember kind of standing there everything is fine the city hasn't fallen as kind of bombs are raining down and the palace is burning behind them um, it's very different now in the context of Ukraine because people I guess not only are they inundated with information uh, but they, they fall more and more as well into the trap of kind of of, of living in their silo and, and the information they're exposed to yeah, and this is, this is why it's so important for people to be much more conscious of who they trust uh, when they go online and, and to gravitate toward people that they know follow a process of journalism that's actually overseen by accountability and transparency. So we as individual consumers have to be, I think, a bit more literate about the way this happens. But there's an interesting thing happening as well with, with artificial intelligence. You know, and People are scared that it will replace the human 
who mm. gives the context. And this is one of the things I'm spotting happening again and again in technology. It creates a danger, like misinformation or disinformation, but it also creates something very human. So it will never stop being vital to us that human beings bear witness to what's going on in the battlefield. And no AI can tell you what it's like to meet someone who's been bereaved or a victim of oppression or tell you what it smells like and sounds like at that moment of battle. AI will never replace that. So I think in so many ways technology is actually reminding us what's really truly human in an age when we have superhuman technologies. Well, uh, uh, if we need a reminding that we were out in the street, that was a motorbike flying past us uh, here in, in, in Docking. Mark Little with me uh, at the Queen's Bar. So uh, when, when you listen to or you know, you're reading these kind of big abstract conversations about AI and the, the threat it poses to humanity, kind of quote-unquote, What's your assessment of that? I think what everybody is, you know, and I I think this is something summed up by David Bowie years ago, talked about the internet was going to create something intoxicating, exciting. Every single person and everything in their daily life is going to start seeing this technology starting to seep in. If you work in an office or a big company, you're going to start to see AI assistants helping you navigate your time off or your expenses. You're going to start to see that happening. Us shopping. I mean, we're not too far away from the point where I'll be able to go online have a personal shopper who will design a menu for me, taking advantage of the kids' tastes, going off, ordering the food to be delivered by potentially a drone or some sort of automated delivery, and knowing my taste, serving my taste better. But at the same time, we're never too far away from some really shady person coming along Mm. and hijacking our data and trying to send us to the wrong store. And, you know, so we're always in this cutting edge. What's different now is that the rapid acceleration of this technology from being in these black boxes to being in our daily life, everything from travel to work to education is going to be impacted by this. So that's what's different about this compared to something like the iPhone. It took a long time to get it into our daily life. I can start to see this happening now. And by the way, we've had AI for quite a while. The discussion we've just had about our kids and Steely Dan, that was AI sending the kids to that piece of music so it's already here it's just not visible yet to everybody and I think we're in this great moment of potential and danger well uh, uh, if that's the macro the micro an example and and you you wouldn't have noticed that you were probably walking down here to the Queen's Bar but uh, uh, Ikea confirming that uh, they're handing over all customer service to Billy uh, their AI agent but the people who were doing that job well unfortunately no it's still the same Allen key you've got to twist (laughs) those bloody Calyx units and Billy bookcases Uh, but those staff that were doing that job are all being trained then in interior design advice yeah and this is one of the interesting things about this technology one of the potential positives is the people who didn't have the education to get some of the high skills of the knowledge worker, the AI could step in and really fill in those gaps. And some of the early studies are showing that in places where there might be people in call centers, they respond much better, more efficient, more productive, gain skills as well by this stuff. So there is actually, to your point with the IKEA interior designer, maybe there is some people who will find a new role. Um, It will obviously reduce employment in certain areas. But there was a great prediction made by an AI godfather called Jeffrey Hinton who said radiologists would be over. There'd be no more radiologists because the AI would examine all the diagnostics. There's never been a bigger shortage of radiologists because the amount of things can be examined now has increased dramatically. So just one example of how it's not necessarily all about seeing jobs go. 
it's about changing maybe the way we do our work. Yeah, the farrier lost his job, but there was plenty of engines that suddenly had to be fixed 120 years ago. Listen, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks a million for Thank joining you. us. Can I take the Aperol yeah, Spritz? You can take the Aperol Spritz. I give a plug to the Doggy Book Fest, but as you say, most of it is, uh, is sold out. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.